The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Carl Sinn. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good evening and uh, welcome to this panel discussion on the rise of authoritarianism in the global south. Uh, my name is uh, Daniel Geary and I, and I teach here uh, in the history department at Trinity. Um, I'm just gonna offer a, a very brief introduction before we get to our uh, three speakers tonight. Um, first, I wanna thank the hub to Eve, Francesca, Eve for the whole team, which uh, they always does such a great job with events. Also to uh, Balesh Poor and the Center for Resistance Studies, which is sponsoring tonight's event. Um, this panel comes really out of, uh, I guess I would say, an act of scholarship as resistance, an effort by scholars in, in different countries to try to understand what's happening in uh, the world today. It's a project that uh, began maybe, say, around 18 to 24 months ago, and we've been meeting um, together, um, speaking to each other about what's going on in our own countries. I'm something of an interloper as a historian of the US, but I've learned a lot about what's happening with Trump and in my, my own native country from learning from this group. And I think that we don't hear enough here in Ireland about what's happening in some of the countries on uh, in the global south where we hear a lot about uh, Trump. So we will have three separate talks. Uh, each speaker will talk for about 10 minutes and then we'll have plenty of time for discussion and uh, for your questions. And I will introduce all the speakers now uh, to begin with uh, and then turn it over to our first speaker. So first you'll be hearing from Fabio Santos, uh, professor of Latin American studies, um, at the uh, U Federal University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, an author of Power and Impotence, the History of South America under Progressivism. Um, Cecilia Lero, uh, who has been a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Sao Paulo and received her PhD in political science from the University of Notre Dame. And, upon, and finally, Aparna Sundar, who's an instructor at the Asian Institute at the University of Toronto. Uh, Cecilia will be speaking to you about the Philippines, the case of the Philippines. Uh, Parna will be speaking about the case of India and Fabio will begin by offering uh, an overview of the project and, and some of the things that have been learned uh, through part of this process that I've been really privileged to be a part of. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to you, Fabio. Th thank you, Dan, so much. Thank you for all colleagues at the TCD at Trinity University, which I had the pleasure of going to, of visiting in person uh, twice in recent years. Um, so I'm really happy to have this gathering, even if it's an online venue, uh, and also to discuss an issue which is not um, so pleasant. Um, so I'm not as, as Daniel has already introduced, I'm, I will not be speaking about Brazil, so I'll be happy taking questions about Brazil if, if, if you have any. Uh, so I'll just say some quick words about our research team, but I thought that it would be more interesting if I share some ideas of what we've discussed instead. So how did this research team came about? I think that, as we all know, one of the few good things that uh, the pandemic brought about were these webinars which sort of became staple in academy. So in this context, 
About two years ago, we started, we, we gathered a, a group of scholars who were committed to social change and it's conceived as a sort of, a, of an international task force aiming to understand um, hatred politics as a global phenomenon, but with this uh, particular focus on the global south. Oh, since we also include Hungary, we, we could say that we're looking to this phenomenon from the margins of capitalism. So as such, we had five, uh, five or six workshops and we've discussed it other than the Philippines, India and Brazil, we've discussed it Hungary and Turkey, as well as some discussion on, on, on the United States. Um, and, and, and we have a book that is about to come out with a, that, that kind of brings, uh, gathers the reflections, some of the reflections that we have um, that came out through this process. So as part of our effort was to compare these five regimes and compare these regimes with aiming to sort of draw a, a, a morphology of this new political form, I will try to bring you um, three ideas just to give you a sense of, of these comparisons, a sense of these discussions to kick off this discussion. So first I'll go over the relation between uh, nationalism and neoliberalism, then the relation between crisis and governance. And lastly, I will reflect on the, the future of this political form that I'm, I'm, I'm just provisionally calling as hatred politics. So uh, the common thread that underlining these three points is that hatred politics and current patterns of social reproduction are intertwined. Or to put it simply, there is, a, there is um, an inseparable relationship between um, hatred politics as we know it and neoliberalism. So uh, first point. So if this new political form embodies a rejection of political liberalism, we see that economic liber liberalism has not been questioned. Therefore, hatred politicians, they face a challenge of how to conciliate nationalism and neoliberalism. The particular way each of these governments address these issues uh, speak a lot about how they operate. And this, is, this will be explored on, on, on national chapters in the book. However, a common thread is to be found. Given the impossibility of economic grounded nationalism, as was the case in the old days of, of, of industrial import substitution industrialization, the battleground of nationalism has been displaced, has been displaced, we could say, from the economy to the realm of culture. As such, the pursuit of the nation is likely to be enacted through a variety of cultural wars. So while neoliberalism, then going neoliberalism, further compromise, which is not challenged by these governments. So while neoliberalism further compromises social bonds based on formal work and social rights, minimum as they might have been in some of these countries, alternative networks and identities tend to be reinforced. So for example, in India, social bonds of caste and religious identity are being restrengthened. The same can be said about the sweeping growth of Christian conservative uh, sects in Brazil, particularly evangelicals. At the same time, we see conservative family values being invoked, often connected with conservative interpretation of religions. The fact that all these regimes are led by macho figures should not go unnoticed. So all in all, it is as if the moral could bind together what the economy dissolves. In these conditions, nationalism does not appeal to people in equality of citizens, which entails universal values, but it mobilizes specific culture, religious, ethnic, or family values. 
So facing the impossibility of building a nation through the integration of citizens bestowed with a job and social rights, as in the, as was expected, let's say in the days of national developmentalism, these politics, they displaced the ground of national belonging to subjective exclusionary criterion. No wonder human rights either have to be uh, resignified or dismissed, being despised as a Western construct in Turkey, India, or the Philippines. In any case, rights are for good citizens, whatever that means. Therefore, they are not universal. So these identitary ideologies speak to a social dynamic that produces disposable surplus population in a massive scale. It is an ideology that fits societies where not everyone fits. Second idea. So these leaders' prestige do not stem from successfully addressing social grievances, nor from outstanding performances in the economic front. In fact, there, are, there seems to be uh, um, a disconnection between livelihood conditions and popular support these leaders benefit. So particularly under Modi, under Bolsonaro and Duterte, there is little concern for policy delivery. Their political efficacy seems to reside elsewhere. Under the circumstances, a question has to be posed. In which conditions this detachment between popular support and policy delivery takes place? And this is one question that we've been trying to address. So this political form is dearly concerned with public image and media performance as opposed to policy delivery. Again, these politicians, they did not invent politics of the spectacle. However, the disconnection between reality and the alternative narratives these governments promote has, has reached unprecedented heights. So fact distortion is not limited to, or is not restrained to the realm of ordinary political propaganda, where we, which selects specific features from reality to portray a partial favorable uh, picture of, of governmental deeds. The detachment between public performance and policy delivery is stretched to a point that simply capsize ordinary parameters of political efficiency. And I may give you some concrete examples of that later, if, if you're interested. So when the constant fabrication of enemies that routinizes conflict is linked to a political rationality where public performance comes before policy delivery. So public performance is more important than actually delivering uh, results. So we are, so when this is linked with, with the fabrication of, of, of enemies, we're facing a political novelty. So instead of a crisis management approach driven to constrain, sorry, driven to contain or to undo whatever creates, whatever steers a crisis, we are facing a political form that produces and serves on crisis. So these leaders, they are not crisis managers. Instead, they govern through crisis. Third idea, these regimes enact as cultural wars the dynamics of individualism and competition that preside daily social reproduction. At the same time, the policies they implement reinforce these very same trends. That is to say, they reinforce the dissolution of social bonds that made the politicization of social resentment feasible in the first place. So as violent production of social disembedding is inherent to the modes of capital accumulation these regimes accelerate, these politics are further propelled by ongoing dynamics of social reproduction. So in other words, to say it simply, these presidents were elected in social conditions, they reinforce. So the social production of despair is accelerated 
further engendering hate, fear, and indifference, which these regimes in turn, they weaponize. As such, what at first was an electoral reaction to a crisis of legitimacy, as all these guys were elected in a context of, of crisis of legitimacy of, of previous uh, political hegemonies or, or conventional political parties, ordinary political parties. So if, if this was the case at first, in a second moment, a deadlock is set in the sense that, uh, and this is so because conditions where hatred politics thrive, they are deepened. So a dynamic comparable to sort of a now to autoimmune disease unfolds in the sense that social disembeddedness, the social disembeddedness that nurtured this politics is intensified while the conditions where resistance or organized reaction could take place are, are undermined. So meanwhile, the boundaries of public debate and of political dispute are displaced. Again, uh, what initially emerged as a reaction against establishment becomes socially desired. So one thing is to elect a hatred politician as an outsider, as was the case in the first election of all these guys, but to reelect them, this is a, a very different matter. As those who once embodied a, re a rejection of the establishment recast the norms, as, as is very clear in the Turkish and the Hungarian cases, which are the ones that have been in power for a longer time, uh, a new normal takes root. The bogus anti-systemic reorders the system. No doubt, resistance are to be found everywhere, and we see ourselves as part of this. However, it must be admitted that these efforts have not been up to the challenge so far. In fact, if hatred politics owe its pervasiveness to violent dynamics of capital reproduction that underpin the liberal way of life, these structural trends have to be addressed for a consistent alternative to rise. So in other words, electoral defeat is unlikely to unroot hatred politics as a global phenomenon, just as it will take more than science to avoid future pandemics. Alternative modes of production and reproduction of life have to emerge, the seeds of which are to be found around the globe, but still in scattered fashion. Thank you. Thank you, Fabio, for that great introduction. And hello, everyone. Um, as Dan said, I'm Cecilia Lero, and I want to thank everybody for uh, attending and also for this invitation. So I'll just talk briefly about uh, about the Philippines, about the conditions leading to uh, the election of uh, Rodrigo Duterte in 2016. I'll give, I'm assuming that not everybody has a, a grasp of even <laughs> of uh, the Philippines' place in the world, so I'll give a brief history of its institutions, regimes, and then characterize uh, the Duterte regime and why we would consider him part of this group of, uh, of authoritarian, authoritarian uh, neoliberal right-wing uh, hatred politicians. Okay, so from the... Uh, uh, just starting really basic, the Philippines was for 300 years a Spanish colony, and then later, um, un, uh, following the Spanish-American War until uh, World War II, an American colony. And so what does this mean for the kind of institutions that we have now and, and the, the build-up to Duterte? We can characterize these colonial legacies as having left with the Philippines a form of elite democracy, 
under Spanish rule and continued under American rule was a, a basically the hacienda system where you have really strong local elites who then became the uh, elected representatives uh, under when elections were were uh, introduced during the American period. And so you have a form of elite democracy that is based on landed families and economic power without meaningful uh, political parties, without parties um, distinguished by ideology or uh, um, mass membership, but really based on, on uh, grassroots control, clientelism, patronage, uh, etc. And we see that uh, this semi-feudal system continues until today. And so if one were to do a meaningful political map of the Philippines, it's uh, it's family-based. Everyone who has run a national election, I've worked on several national elections, we do our mapping, we make our alliances based on, and negotiations based on political regional families. Um, so we gained uh, the first democratic period was following World War II and we gained independence from the United States. Then uh, the Marcos dictatorship appeared in um, the 1970s. So Marcos was elected in the 60s, then declared martial law in 1972. Um, so this is part of what uh, we would term this uh, cohort of uh, Cold War uh, dictatorships. Uh, he was strongly supported by the United States. And this was a dictatorship much like a lot of the Latin American dictatorships with a supposed uh, social project. He called his project the New Society Movement and claimed to uh, that uh, uh, Instituting dictatorship, closing Congress was necessary to address corruption, institute discipline in the people. We see this very um, elite and colonial mentality that Filipinos are not ready for democracy. We need to install discipline, and so we need an iron fist. And this is something that we see uh, uh, rhyming in with the regime that the Philippines has today. Um, so despite uh, uh, this rhetoric, what really characterized this, uh, the Marcos regime was high levels of corruption and really institutionalized corruption and the, the distortion of institutions to benefit uh, Marcos and his cronies. And we see these uh, institutional distortions uh, uh, really alive and, and still holding us back until today. Uh, lots of violence, uh, disappearances, mass killings, etc. Um, and a highly institute, uh, politicized military. The democratic period uh, began in 1986 with the uh, People Power Movement, the Eds, or also known as the First Edsa Revolution. Uh, and a new constitution was uh, instituted in 1987. So this new constitution uh, involved various sectors, involved civil society in a quite uh, uh, participatory process. However, we see that the uh, elite and anti-popular nature of the preceding regime continued into the democratic period. So even though the written constitution is full of guarantees for basic human and social rights, uh, one of the first decisions of the new Supreme Court was to determine that those uh, clauses of the constitution were not self-enacting and needed, in fact, enacting laws to be passed by Congress. They were merely aspirational. Of course, Congress continued to be dominated by the same elite families as many dating themselves back to the Spanish colonial period. And so many of these guarantees have not 
actually seen in enacting laws nor implementation. And so we can uh, characterize the, the uh, democratic period, this, uh, you know, the Philippines is one of what we would term the third wave democracies. So this democratic period since the 80s until uh, recent times as um, decidedly neoliberal. Um, when uh, Cory Aquino, who was the first president post-Marcos, took over, she instituted automatic a debt service to the World Bank. So the dictatorship had taken out billions of dollars in loans and Filipinos will continue paying those until 2025. Uh, we see a, um, an economic strategy based mostly on uh, courting uh, international capital investments with uh, some social investment, but no real effort for meaningful asset reform or movements for equality. The best that we have is poverty relief. Um, and uh, still uh, uh, lots of corruption, uh, human rights abuses, uh, uh, damaged institutions, but still space for um, for contestation, space for progressive forces and non-elite forces to organize, uh, and much better a much better human rights situation than under the Marcos period. Um, so I think a lot of us, both on the academic side and as the act and uh, as activists, we saw this period, this 30-year-long period since the reinstitution of democracy to the early 2000s as um, frustrating slow, but nevertheless forward moving uh, march towards both economic stability and democracy participation and respect for human rights. Um, the, the second uh, Aquino presidency, so the son of Cory Aquino, uh, became president in 2010. And this was after uh, two well, three presidents, but the two presidents prior to the second Aquino were uh, uh, regimes, administrations, really mired in a lot of corruption, controversies, um, uh, bad governance controversies, but that had uh, invigorated a strong social uh, civil society movement and uh, um, more widespread participation. And so when the second Aquino uh, uh, when the presidency in 2010, it was a time, it was a very popular regime. Uh, uh, it was a time when people were very hopeful. Uh, there was a promise uh, by that president and his administration to reform uh, institutions, especially corruption. Um, and it was a time uh, both during the second Aquino presidency as well as the presidency before him of uh, really rapid economic growth. Uh, you know, the Philippines was considered the new rising tiger of Asia, even though we don't have tigers. <laughs> but the reality is that despite all this optimism, there was a lot of frustration. It seemed that the reality, for many reasons, because of um, both institutional constraints, as well as, in my opinion, an unwillingness to really take drastic measures and to uh, institute piecemeal reform, uh, the reality didn't live up to this dramatic change that people envisioned. Uh, corruption, poverty, and high inequality continued, is, and, and inequality um, 
became that much more apparent with this high economic growth. So you have lots of people out of extreme poverty, but you also have the rich getting incredibly rich and the rise of a new, um, uh, we can term it a new middle class. We can also term it uh, 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 or a lower middle class or a, or a new working class. The idea is that people who are recently out of poverty, but not economically stable, where the work is still precarious, but uh, they're able to define themselves by by being able, by for the first time, being the first generation in their families to have have access to uh, disposable income, instituting this this um, identity based on consumerism, as well as a strong desire to to distinguish themselves from the impoverished masses. Um, and at the same time, uh, during the second Aquino presidency, we see the beginnings of the construction of a uh, disinformation and fake news machinery, largely financed and with content driven by the Marcos family. Now that brings us to 2015, 2016. Um, so Duterte um, starts appearing in national presidential surveys around uh, less than a year before, before the 2016 presidential elections. Duterte was the longtime mayor of a city in the south that was uh, known to be a very violent place and then um, supposedly got less violent during his his term. Uh, it's notable that his term there was basically 30 years, so the entire democratic period. Um, and he was known for having a spotty, uh, not a spotty, but a, a horrible human rights record, even as mayor of his city, for having essentially death squads go around killing petty criminals. Um, when he ran for president, he had two big messages. Um, so the first was, I'm not like traditional politicians who are corrupt and only out, out for themselves, don't care about the masses. So what we would consider sort of a classically populist message. And the second uh, harks back to what uh, Fabio was speaking about in terms of this polarization and hatred politics. So his second message was, um, there are good and bad people in this country. The bad people who he defined as drug users, uh, taking care, not taking, or rather not taking care to distinguish drug users with addicts, with traffickers, all are the same for him. It's the bad people that are holding our country back. And so all we need to do to reach modernization, prosperity, safety is to kill all the bad people. Uh, T1 with 39% of the vote, we have a, a single round plurality system in the Philippines. Um, and it was also a, an electoral campaign a, a, characterized by a lot of fake news, a lot of incendiary uh, rhetoric, lies, and the creation of hate for for anything considered yellow. Yellow is the, the uh, party of the president prior to him, who again was very popular until the election. We have no re-election in the Philippines. Um, and sort of this fascination with easy and dramatic solutions. Uh, and, and that campaign period was different really than any other presidential campaign that I had experienced. Uh, it was a different energy. People uh, were involved in, 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 in the Duterte campaign with a kind of energy where, where it was incredibly uh, aggressive and, and uh, violent. And, and both, both 
camps were quite condescending to each other. Um, so uh, again, Duterte won. <laughs> and the legacies that we see uh, now are quite possibly the only campaign promise he made good on was this promise of a quote-unquote drug war. Over 30,000 people have been murdered by police and vigilante groups connected to the police. And we know that incentives uh, for these police killings came straight from the president's office. Um, uh, systematic attacks on the opposition and the capture of state institutions. So. One of the first things he did was to go after a senator who had formerly been a commissioner on human rights, uh, used the levers of government to jail her for ironically being, being a drug lord, uh, being a high-level trafficker, and since then has um, delayed her trial basically to keep her in jail and suffering. Um, uh, the use of the drug war for so for high-level opposition figures as well as for local politicians. So Duterte goes around saying that he has a list of narco politicians. He doesn't say who's on the list, but if you're a mayor or if you're a governor, you're going to be scared that you're on that list. Um, also using the drug war to attack uh, civil society and human rights defenders, saying that we are enablers of the evil that is drugs, and so we are also enemies of the con of the of the nation. Um, uh, removed the head of the Supreme, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, um, as I said, captured, uh, uh, has systematically attacked uh, many senators and in the House of Representatives uh, put his own son as uh, one of the assistant speakers who uh, in that term was actually the de facto speaker. Um, so the systematic capture of institutions, also attacks on the media. So some of you might know that Maria Ressa, who is the CEO of one of, uh, of a particularly critical media outlet in the Philippines, recently won the Nobel Prize. Uh, um, the, the use of fake news and, and uh, pro-government bloggers, and as uh, Fabio uh, spoke about this governing by crisis, the distortion of reality itself. Um, uh, you know, this government believes that perception is reality. I myself have heard uh, um, officials from this government say that in closed door meetings. So the idea is it's about controlling and distorting reality when necessary in order to create this, this feeling of constant war, constant existential threats against the nation. And and uh, uh, characterizing the nation as one with the president. So interestingly, even though uh, the regime remains, uh, or the president remains extremely popular in surveys, uh, we see a demobilization. This is not a, a government that encourages popular uh, uh, participation in, in policymaking or in, in issues that are important. It, uh, is a government that encourages people to engage with the enemy, the enemy being uh, drug users and, of course, opposition politicians, in order to protect to protect the personality of Duterte, but to not speak about policy, not to have any influence on on the act of governing. Um, economically, we see the further concession to big business. Uh, so 
neoliberalism has continued despite lots of of sort of pro-poor and pro-worker rhetoric during the campaign. Basically, um, uh, business (laughs) makes all the big decisions. Uh, Corruption is very, has, has worsened. And there's been the rise of of the of the Davao elite. So Davao is the city where uh, Duterte was pre- was mayor for many years, and so we don't see um, the disappearance of sort of national level oligarchs, but we see the rise of oligarchs that are in the personal circle of Duterte. So a new form of crony capitalism. Uh, we see a strong turn to China. So the U.S. Has, uh, the Philippines as a former colony of the U.S. has always had a special relationship with the U.S. Um, uh, and so uh, Duterte has uh, stopped this or, or really uh, weakened on this and made a strong turn towards China. Um, now, in the name of an independent foreign policy. Now, of course, we would want an independent, an independent foreign policy. But the problem is that he's not being independent. He's giving amazing concessions to China, use of uh, concessions to use a our territory for their overseas casinos, um, uh, given up basically on a, a territorial dispute that we have in the in the West Philippine Sea and the South China Sea. Um, and this is because China provides him with uh, money and sort of stature on the international scale without having, having uh, any demands in terms of human rights. Um, and yet, as I said, he remains popular because of this. One of the biggest strategies is this constant use of fear and hate. Um, and it should be noted that when he speaks of drug users, he's not speaking about, uh, you know, high level sort of the party boy who goes to the clubs and takes designer drugs. He's actually said this. Um, he's speaking about people in the poor slum communities uh, to completely taking advantage of long-standing stereotypes as of, of people in poor communities as ne'er-do-wells, lazy, uh, uh, drug-addicted and violent. And so further fomenting this class hate that has already existed. Um, so what's next? I'll keep this brief. Uh, um, what's next is we have elections in May. Uh, so far, the front runner uh, for president is the son of the of the dictator Marcos, and the vice president on his slate is the daughter of Duterte. Um, and why why are they the front runner? Again, so much money, <laughs> so much machinery, uh, uh, taking advantage of all the 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 weakness. Uh, uh, the ways that Duterte has weakened institutions, as well as the ways that he has weakened the opposition. Um, and uh, uh, the Marcos son, uh, he's Ferdinand Jr., but he goes by the nickname Bongbong. Bongbong is actually a lot like Bolsonaro, the Brazilian president was in, in 2018, where he is going absolutely out of his way to avoid all forms of public debate or forum with his with his uh, with the other people running, um, uh, claiming that there are death threats against him, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that's a situation that we're in. Uh, one last thing um, I noted here was the pandemic especially showed the ineptitude of the Duterte government. So it's it's quite ironic because one of the 
of the things that authoritarians say to justify uh, concentrating power so much is that it's for efficiency, right? It's to get stuff done. Um, and yet we saw that while he has gone out of his way to, to systematically concentrate power in the executive, when it comes to actually dealing with the crisis, he uh, dispersed all responsibility to local government units and the private sector. And so we have the makings of authoritarianism without actually uh, using that power to do any form of governing. Um, so with that, I'll... Um, I wish I could end on a more positive note, but uh, I'm looking forward to your questions. So thank you very much. Okay, I'll uh, I'll take over from Cecilia, even if it's a bit of a challenging task to follow up uh, on that. Um, I have a few slides to share, so I'm going to try and share my slides. Um, and if that doesn't work for some reason, then I'll just speak with them, speak to them. But I was hoping that that would make me more efficient. Um, okay, so. Uh, I'm Aparna Sundar, as Dan um, introduced us. I uh, am, again, say I would like to say thanks to Dan for this um, invitation and to my fellow panelists and to uh, uh, everyone present here. I'm gonna be speaking, as you can see, about Modi's New India, about neoliberalism and Hindu nationalism. Uh, and uh, so just to sort of lay it out a little bit, I'm talking about the last seven years, of Modi in power. He came to power first uh, at the head of the BJP in 2014 and was re-elected in 2019. So he's in his second term as prime minister. And in these past seven years has successfully transformed much of India uh, socially, culturally, economically, even in terms of the physical landscape and of course the economy and institutions. Um, at the same time over this period, he's headlined a series of what can only be described as disasters. Um, including such things as the decommissioning uh, in 2016 of some 87% of the circulating currency purportedly to clear up uh, illicit holdings, but really that resu uh, resulted in a vast, vast crisis for um, India's informal sector that relies primarily on cash. Uh, the ill-conceived and hastily declared lockdown in March 2020 in response to the pandemic, which led to the long march of thousands of migrant workers uh, unable to subsist in the cities, back from the cities to their home villages. And of course, the callous uh, response and refusal to provide them any form of social support. Uh, the declaration in March 20, in February 2021, that India had, um, had successfully overcome COVID. And then when all evidence, of course, in, uh, in March and April of that year showed the contrary, a complete failure to provide basic hospital facilities, shortages of oxygen, and the sites that were globally visible of bodies uh, floating down the Holy River Ganges. Um, uh, and then of course the disaster that is the economy, uh, unemployment levels at their highest in five decades, uh, a recession of the kind that India has never had before, a shrinking and failure to attract foreign investment, uh, and uh, a really striking growth of inequality with uh, the, the richest um, families now owning more than eight, the, you know, more and more of the country's uh, income and wealth. 
Um, so despite all of these striking disasters, we continue to see Modi is relatively popular. He's currently doing what he loves doing best, which is electioneering in India's largest state, which is coming up for its state elections, the state of UP, which has a population about 200 million. So it's a very important state politically, uh, and he's expected to do to possibly win his party, uh, if perhaps with a somewhat reduced uh, majority. Um, so his rise to power and his continued popularity, despite evident social and economic crisis, can be ascribed to the success of Hindutva or Hindu supremacist nationalism, which has systematically been put in place through a combination of social violence, state authoritarianism, cultural work, and legislation. As a project of legitimation, Hindutva has an ideological and organizational strength that is perhaps unique among the cases that we've been discussing. Um, uh, Hindutva is best understood, however, not as a discrete cultural political project of legitimation, but as deeply and interwoven, of course, with neoliberal accumulation. At the same time, the politics of Hindutva nationalism has a dangerous power and autonomy that cannot be understood uh, in terms of its relationship to neoliberalism alone, neither in its origins and nor in its effects. It is a century-old project of revanchist social and cultural dominance that seeks to replace the earlier hegemony of Nehruvian developmentalism with its political liberalism and gradualist social Im improvement uh, with an exclusionary caste-based and patriarchal nationalism that verges and is if, not, uh, is, if not completely fascist, certainly verges on it. Um, so very quickly, I'm gonna run through these strides. Uh, what is involved in constructing a Hindu nation? Um, Hindu nationalism, Hindutva, is premised on the assumption that India has a Hindu majority, but this majority, in fact, is not um, an objective majority, but constantly needs to be constructed. And the contradictions here is that needs to be constructed uh, to include certain populations that have historically been dominated by the dominant Hindu castes, uh, so incorporate them into this majority while also, of course, successfully identifying and excluding those identified as outsiders or enemies. And so the construction of a people as well as of its enemies. Uh, and the primary enemy in this case are India's uh, large, uh, you know, 140 or 50 million Muslims, along with other religious minorities, Christians, sometimes Sikhs, uh, etc., uh, but also then the incorporation of the oppressed caste and indiv indigenous or Adivasi communities. And uh, within and in this uh, process of, of nation building, nation constructing, uh, there are also, of course, other enemies who are also declared as anti-national. And these are common to all of these cases, this set of enemies, the seculars, uh, the leftists, the intellectuals, journalists, activists, uh, etc. So this is a this is a contradictory and difficult kind of balance, to, but it needs it's one that constantly needs to be reinforced uh, and maintained. And the modes uh, through which this is done are, of course, the modes of discourse and rhetoric. So there's this constant kind of anti-Muslim rhetoric, anti-elite rhetoric, where uh, the uh, elites are described as westernized intellectual uh, and so on, whereas the real people are, are none of these things. So there's a lot of that kind of construct the discourse of the nation, but there's also direct violence, um, the violence carried out by social vigilante groups, small Hindutva groups all over the country carrying out violence against 
random violence against poor Muslims uh, based, you know, sometimes on those seen to be uh, trafficking in um, or even carrying beef uh, or violence against those supposedly engaging in what they call love jihad, which is uh, relationships between usually uh, Muslim men and Hindu women. So all kinds of violence against these self-declared or enemies of the nation. But it's also carried out, and especially in his second term, this construction of the nation, of the Hindu nation, was carried out through law, through the citizenship laws, the Citizenship Amendment Act and the National Register of Citizens that declared, and I, I don't want to go into the details, but I can talk about them in um, if people have questions, but that essentially made Muslims into second-class citizens of India. Uh, the removal of the constitutional autonomy for Kashmir and its downgrading uh, from a state to a centrally administered territory, but more importantly, it's complete, it's the increase in the occupation of Kashmir, military occupation, uh, and other kinds of uh, land grabs and so on that are going on there. Uh, other actions, the, the Babri Masjid, the destruction of a, a significant mosque that had become a kind of point of uh, contention that, that was a marker in the growth of Hindu uh, Hindu politics uh, and various other such laws that outlaw this love jihad, um, beef eating, the trade in beef, etc. And finally, of course, the very severe increase in repression, arrests of all kinds of activists, of comedians, of um, actors, artists, uh, and uh, very extensive surveillance, including uh, through Pegasus, um, which has become a sort of major flashpoint. Um, other elements of uh, Modi's governance uh, have been are, are similar in many ways to what um, Cecilia described in the case of the Philippines, uh, a great centralization of power, uh, both in the prime minister's office and in his person, and also, of course, in the center and away from the states uh, within this federal um, system. The capture of institutions of all kinds, including those that are uh, constitutionally arms length, such as National Human Rights Commission or the Election Commission, as well as the, the capture of various civil society organizations, as well as the media, a kind of plebiscitary form of governance and government in which electioneering itself has become a kind of ongoing mode of governance, constantly trying to uh, reinforce the popularity um, of the leader. And this is assisted by the massive capture of funds for the BJP through such uh, slates of hand as the electoral bonds uh, uh, legislation that Modi passed, uh, and an ongoing politics of spectacle uh, in policy making or the policies of development and welfare, the rule through crisis, and uh, the cult of personality and personalistic rule, both in the sort of constant, you know, the decision decisionism he shows in such things as declaring um, a countrywide lockdown in, with 24 hours, well, with four hours notice, uh, or the, the demonetization uh, masterstroke. Um, so those kinds of personalistic decisions, but also this constant self-portrayal of Modi himself as an ascetic, as unworldly, as some kind of uh, you know ho Hindu holy man. So all of these play into um, his our mode of governance. There's also at the same time an interesting um, uh, a reliance, of course, and affection for technology and particularly digitalization, uh, as this um, cartoon would suggest. So, you know, the solution for everything is more, um, is digital, some kind of digital, uh, some new app. 
Um, tied to this, of course, uh, is deepening neoliberalism, a whole fleet of laws aimed at improving the ease of doing business in India around land acquisition, ease of uh, labor, easing uh, labor legislation, environmental legislation, shifting the tax burden um, to income taxes, and most of all, to regressive goods and services taxes, farm law reform, uh, which I can talk off at the end, um, and public sector divestment in what is called asset monetization, essentially long leasing uh, uh, public sector units to the private sector in an attempt to attract investment. And all of this or much of this is being sold off, uh, given off, handed over to uh, to cronies and in a kind of, of course, mutual, mutually beneficial relationship whereby the cronies then contribute to the electoral bonds and in other ways to, uh, to enriching the party's coffers. Okay, just to explain then quickly the BJP's rise to power, and, and this is important to think about its relationship with, uh, with neoliberalism, um, I want to explain it in three ways. One is to just look quickly at, the, at Hindu, uh, Hindu nationalism or Hindutva as a project. Uh, and this is an old project, it's a century old project. There's a very strong organizational base, extensive organizational base uh, uh, attached to it. it carries out all kinds of welfare activities, educational activities, and so on. Its original ideology was influenced by the Nazis. It's an ideology of racialist exclusivity, Hindu-Aryan supremacy, etc. cetera. Um, this was delegitimized, and one of its wings, the RSS, was even banned because of its association with Gandhi's assassin, uh, but it came back, it was made legal again uh, in the 70s. Uh, it's continued. Um, to, but the, its real growth took place in the 80s, and that's when it became politically visible and salient, partly in response to the weakening of the hegemony of the Congress party that had essentially was the party in power from the time of India's independence in 1947. Uh, so a weakening of that, regional challenges, other kinds of challenges to Congress hegemony, uh, also partly due to the rise of different class groups, uh, aside from those that were attached to the Congress. And also a challenge uh, from uh, the increased assertiveness of oppressed castes aid aided by the expansion of uh, affirmative action for these castes uh, in the late 1980s. And so partly the rise of the BJP and of Hindutva politics was in reaction to the increased assertiveness of lower caste because Hinduism and Hindutva in particular is an ideology of upper caste, of, of dominant caste um, uh, domination. The second sort of element in the early 90s was the liberalization of India's economy, opening up to foreign investment, uh, withdrawal of the state from many sectors, and generally increasing the role of the private sector. Uh, so which led over since that period to the growing power of domestic big capital, the rise of new what are called provincial property classes. So agrarian classes, landowning classes that also then began to acquire commercial interests and became quite powerful in the small towns. And then eventually of course, nationally and were tied to, or were big supporters of the BJP and emerging mid 
middle class with global references, as well as a kind of aspirational lower middle class. And here the BJP came to represent or spoke for what they called the brand India. Brand India being something that was assertive, globally recognized, globally respected, but authentically Indian. And this is where you know symbols of Hinduism began to be kind of broadcast, um, big among them, of course, being um, yoga, which Modi is kind of made into this um, symbol of the nation. Uh, and at the same time, so this spoke to a number of disparate classes, this kind of assertive, uh, but uniquely Indian mod modernity. Uh, and at the same time, you see, of course, on the other side, the growth of um, joblessness, informalization, agrarian distress, and, um, and growing inequality. The immediate context of Modi's rise to power were uh, the weakening, apparent weakening of the second term of the Congress-led coalition in power with corruption scandals that they seemed unable to be able to contain. And so capital became more and more sort of nervous about them. They were seen as too soft on anti-development, on, on re people resisting uh, land acquisition, resisting uh, accumulation by dispossession and so on. Uh, they had also, as a result of the particular co coalition that brought them to power, they had passed a number of rights-based legislation uh, that, that had broadened uh, the right to work, the right to food, uh, and soften, you know, had kind of put in some protections around land acquisition, and all of these were also making capital somewhat nervous. And at the same time, Modi, in contrast, had showed himself to be a tough and pro-capital administrator during his three terms as chief minister of the state of Gujarat. So, so these factors weakened uh, the support for the Congress government and led capital in particular, but also the um, urban middle classes uh, to throw their weight behind Modi. Um, I'll I'll just I'll end now just quickly referring to uh, where the opposition and resistance to him might be found. Uh, the opposition, of course, the political opposition is still it still struggles at the national level to sort of come together to to find itself uh, to find strength in opposition to him or to find unity in opposition to the BJP, which which for one thing has money that is you know, more than 10 times what all of the other opposition parties have put together. Um, but a lot of the opposition comes from the state governments. And one of the interesting things to note is that while at the national level, these orange, the orange shows you the extent of, uh, of BJP support, at the state level uh, with state governments, uh, it's not as widespread. And that's where a lot of the kind of breakaway comes or the, the opposition comes. Uh, so state elections often lead to other parties coming to power, but at the national level, they're still uh, very difficult to think in terms of alternatives for many people. Uh, there's also, of course, been very, very visible and public uh, social movements, and especially uh, the uh, citizenship rights movement, the movement against the Citizenship Amendment Act, led by Muslim women, but supported uh, widely across the country and unfortunately had to be shut down because of the COVID lockdown in March 2020. Um, but otherwise, this was this was a major source of challenge, which brought together multiple kind of outsiders. So Muslims, oppressed castes, uh, activists, students, um, intellectuals, etc., cetera, uh, and remains one powerful poll. The other is um, both the labor, organized labor, as well as uh, the farmers' movements. And this is uh, 
um, an image of uh, of a large farmers uh, protest, uh, which was organized by uh, the trade union affiliated to the uh, CPI, Communist Party of India Marxists. Uh, but but this was kind of an early precursor to the big farmers protest that lasted for a whole year and ended uh, just last month, uh, or ended uh, at the end of last year actually. Uh, but they were there for a whole year, and they were they managed to get Modi to actually uh, agree to drop the three farm laws that he that he had introduced, which were opening up agriculture to marketization, uh, and so so they were significant. But at the same time, many of their demands have not been met, uh, and they are very actively electioneering along with Modi in. Um, in UP, in the state that's going to elections. So there is some sign that this kind of unrest that this the farmers movement has brought into being can have electoral political implications, uh, but it's still, it's still really uh, Modi's India. I'll stop there. Well, thank you very much to uh, our speakers for their um, very stimulating contributions this evening. Um, I think we do have the opportunity, if everyone is okay, to stay a few minutes past the hour just to, to get to some of these questions. Um, I have some, some very good ones here already in the chat, but if you want to ask another question, please feel free to, to jump in. Um, a number of questions from Regina Reinhardt, but I, I want to, I guess, uh, go to one of these, which is about uh, human rights abuses and the power of the international community, because there are, are you know, very well documented abuses of human rights in, in all these countries. But what power, if any, does uh, the international human rights community have to, to counteract uh, these abuses? Whoever wants to take that, go ahead. Um, I'll address this. So. Uh, if we think about the international human rights, the sort of mechanisms, the UN processes, the um, international law and whatnot, it, it's never really been effective, right? So Duterte has, is um, the subject of a case at the International Criminal Court, which will take years and years to resolve if it's ever resolved. Um, I'm not dismeriting uh, that effort. I think it's incredibly important. Um, but in in the long term, but in the short term, um, it's more important for for how uh, the de delegitimizing of the government. We've seen that he and a lot of these these leaders are extremely sensitive about how they're perceived on the international stage, and so I think there's absolutely a role for the ICC and similar similar mechanisms. But for international networks of solidarity, um, there absolutely is a is a role to play. Um, so I would say. Uh, one thing is to really pressure these big social media companies to be more accountable for the kind of rhetoric and uh, uh, speech and incendiary uh, uh, lies that they allow to be spread on their platforms. We see in all these countries that we've studied that uh, social media is a huge mobilizer of, of not only disinformation, but that uh, uh, incites people to, to act a certain way. Um, for those in the global north, in in Europe, in the U.S., uh, the freezing of assets. Okay, so these guys are people again on the global periphery, and everybody who has money in the global periphery, what do they want to do? 
they want to invest in the US, they want to send their kids to school in Europe. Um, and so uh, uh, the sort of freezing assets, travel bans on, on, on particular personalities who want to flaunt their wealth and power by going and shopping in, in Miami or Paris. These are, are quite uh, uh, powerful tools. Um, and then I would say international attention and shaming. Again, at least in, in Duterte's situation, who I think among uh, um, the three countries represented here has probably the uh, one of the is one of the least ambitious in terms of of uh, projecting himself and his country and and our country as as a player on the global stage. But he's still incredibly sensitive to uh, uh, news that comes out abroad. Uh, uh, that either criticizes him or, or helps the opposition. Uh, by the same coin, the opposition feels uh, it's important for the morale, right? For for the energizing to keep on in a very uh, frustrating uh, and horrible fight. So uh, uh, those are those are three ways, uh, like concrete ways. Um, I want to say that there is. Um, None of these regimes are, are, are is, is is threatened by international sanctions or freezing assets or perhaps uh, individuals, but not in the way, for example, Maduro's Venezuela is in the current moment. And I don't want to make a stand or defend Venezuela's Maduro. I just want to point out that there is uh, uh, double standards here, at, at least if you want, if if, if you. If you consider Venezuela to be a dictatorship or an authoritarian regime or so forth, I'm not going into this discussion. I'm just pointing to that this and uh, this is a specific contradiction. And, uh, and 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 the I think this has to do with the fact that this is a global phenomenon. So how can the U.S. that elected Trump, for example, propose to uh, freeze assets or international sanctions against uh, these regimes, which are pretty much comparable to what the US just had. So this is my hypothesis on, 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 on that. So who's gonna cast the first stone is really difficult is, is since we're talking about a global phenomenon. A second a comment is that uh, you should bear in mind that once we're, we're, we're comparing uh, the regimes, we're also gonna see contrast between them. This is part of the richness of the process. So Brazil is not at, at this point, um, um, civil liberties uh, are, are widely respected in Brazil. And this is in contrast, for example, with the Indian situation uh, or, or, or even with uh, the Philippines. Um, uh, so the, I think Bolsonaro, he faces two, uh, let's say, wider challenges in that front. The first is that he can be prosecuted internationally for, for genocide because of his stance in, in the COVID um, uh, crisis. So, so, so this is because, well, because there are, this is well doc documented that he bet uh, and he's still betting, you know, with this uh, herd immunity and it was neglect. There was many, well, anyway, there's lots of evidence that could uh, give him a good case for, for, for genocide. But, but other than that, people is not getting, you know, arrested or killed or, or in any systematic or the press, so people shout out against Bolsonaro. There are manifest, there are demonstrations manifested. This is different compared to other countries that we've been uh, looking at. And Bolsonaro is also being uh, prosecuted. He has many criminal 
um, plain, simple, ordinary criminal charges against him and his sons. He has three sons in politics. So I think this is this is where uh, this is more 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 sensitive uh, in in the, in the specific Brazilian case. I just want to make two quick points about India. One is that. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the violence is not direct. Modi is very clever, so that you know the genocidal calls against Muslims, for instance, the calls for genocide against Muslims is is by Hindu leaders meeting somewhere. It's not from Modi, you know. It's not from the government officials directly. So while there's no clamping down on these calls, there's also a kind of denial deniability element, uh, which is also more frightening because these calls are more widespread. They're out sometimes out. You know, he's playing to them just as much as he's sponsoring them. Um, but the second thing is that. Uh, there's also the emphasis on democracy, right? On a formal democracy, on retaining all of those elements so that the United States, for instance, has even after Modi came to power only last year initiated this quad group of countries that includes the United States, Australia, Japan, and India. The point being to create some kind of alternative pole in Asia against China. And so because of India's geopolitical um, present importance, and because nominally it can still be claimed to belong to the family of democratic nations, uh, it 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 continues to be seen as an ally, and all of the kind of reprimands are quite mildly made. Uh, you know, even if they are increasingly having to be made because of of the extent of uh, of human rights violations, genocidal calls, and so on. Thanks very much. We have another question, I suppose, which is about uh, technology. Uh, how much is the rise of authoritarianism aided by technological surveillance and technology in general? And another question mentioned specifically social media. So how, how are these authoritarian governments using technology and how does technology offer a, a weapon to them? I think Aparna could speak about that because I think this is a big thing in the Indian case. It's not so much in the Brazilian case. I think it was more in the Brazilian case, it was more, you know, the use of fake news and, and particularly WhatsApp in, in electoral campaigns and, and, and so forth. But but this this is not a state state using uh, social media. But in, in India, this is very strong, I believe. Yeah. I mean, there's there's two things. There's the state using social media. So there is the BJP IT cell that actually sends out all this information that is circulated through social media. But the question is specifically to do with surveillance, and the Indian state has been really caught. It's it's there's been two big cases um, in which it's been, uh, if not directly, you know, there's no they haven't sort of been brought to court yet, but the evidence is strong against them. One is, of course, the use of Pegasus uh, and a recent New York Times. So Pegasus was used and um, found on, on phones and different kinds of uh, devices of opposition leaders, judges, human rights activists, journalists, et cetera. Quite a wide net was cast. Pegasus is um, produced, uh, manufactured by an Israeli uh, defense company at the NSO group, and they only sell to governments. And now the, the New York Times has a story which essentially says that they were, it was sold uh, during a visit uh, by Modi to Israel. So, you know, it's clear that Pegasus is being used to surveil the opposition, but an even more frightening case was the use of a much more easily accessible uh, technology called Netwire, which was used to uh, 
to not just access the hard drives of a group of uh, human rights activists, but to plant information uh, on those hard drives. And then that those do planted documents were used as evidence that these people were actually plotting to overthrow the state and so on. And so a group of 16 very leading uh, lawyers and human rights activists have been arrested and incarcerated for the last three years uh, on the basis of this, what seems to be now clearly planted evidence. Uh, so there's definitely a very strong um, uh, impetus for using technology, uh, both for fake news purposes as well as for surveillance purposes and for this kind of dissemination of hate, which uh, which all of these Twitter and Facebook and so on are having to now account for the fact that many of their um, algorithms that are supposed to be weeding out hate speech actually aren't able to deal with uh, the kind of uh, very devious routes that these groups are taking uh, in order to get their the hate speech out. And then, um, just, oh, go ahead. Just to add quickly, um, the same thing in Philippines is uh, it's nowhere near India in terms of surveillance, but again, the fake news, the undoing of reality, which I think is something that we all uh, have to be really, really scared about. We're not living in the same world as these people. Facts are somehow have become malleable and, and facts and opinions are, are people are no longer able to able to distinguish between facts and opinions. Um, I think that social media has also had a role in in demobilizing a lot of people because people think that clicktivism is activism. And so when I spend, you know, half an hour every day responding to trolls on Facebook, I think that I've done something good instead of joining a, a political party or a social movement. And I think that's a, another danger from the other side. And one final question then about um it's about the, the most efficient ways to disrupt authoritarianism, especially by scholars, by artists. What uh, forms of resistance have been the most, had the most influence, I suppose? Um, I just want to make one quick comment about uh, a previous question is that um, I think Aparna pointed uh, a very important issue, which is that this, um, these governments, they're not, they're not about, you know, um, they're not staging coups. Uh, so the military are not in power, although we do have a, a military president in Brazil, but this is not, this is not what it's all about. A democratic facade is valuable and it's being preserved by all these regimes. So I think this also makes the, 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 the scenario more, more, you know, more, more fuzzy. And uh, but the way these regimes uh, have been acting is through the capture of state institutions. So this is a pattern that we see. If a, if a pattern is to be, we see very clearly in the Turkish case, and then in the Hungarian case, and then the Indian case, which are the where, where these governments have been in charge for longer. Uh, so so this and once they have captured institutions, we have. Um, they, 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 they operate, you know, like to, to rewrite the constitution or draft a new constitution in the, in the Hungarian case, or they change the constitution in the Turkish case. So they, they start uh, rewriting or recrafting institutions themselves. And the, in this sense that I mentioned that a new normal uh, starts to be uh, crafted. And so this has to do with, you know, with the, with the, the, the public sphere that is poisoned because of uh, fake news and so forth, but also because of this institu institutional way of 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 doing uh, of of threatening democracy, so to speak. 
regarding resistance, um, uh, I think from the Brazilian point of view, I think that uh, the, the, the intellectuals, they are pretty much, uh, I would say, discredited at this point because intellectual life has been discredited by these regimes and, you know, by the... So if you want to make an, a difference, you must have, be a YouTube influencer or, or, or it, it, you have a much better shot on, on that. So still, I, from my, my, my perception at, at this point is that nothing beats uh, uh, street demonstrations or, or popular demonstrations or whatever. Uh, but this, uh, we did have uh, sizable demonstrations against Bolsonaro last year. But the thing is that once um, we have, we are now in an election year. We have elections in Brazil uh, in 2022. Uh, maybe I can address this question later because there was a question about that in the beginning. Uh, and then once this was, so this uh, demonstra demonstrations just uh, uh, calmed down. So we are now looking for Bolsonaro to end his mandate. And this is also a kind of normalizing of this uh, sort of politics. Um, so I think there's a really important role for for uh, both academics. And I love that you brought up artists, whoever it was that asked this question. Um, so again, this is a great transition from the last point, the last question about uh, how how these guys use social media and various uh, uh, tools to control the narrative, to control the national discourse. Why are they using uh, governing via crisis and distraction? Uh, and and uh, the problem is when the opposition really reacts to everything that they do. And so I think there's an important role for for uh, thinkers and for artists to. Um, control the narrative on our terms, set the own agenda, set our own agenda, and let them respond. Um, I, I uh, tend to uh, uh, agree with Fabio in that uh, probably if, as academics, we're like, none of us are going <laughs> to gain a million followers uh, doing uh, uh, workshops or writing our books, but hopefully we can influence the artists and, and Art has an incredibly important role to play. The cultural hegemony uh, is really important for uh, disrupting the fear, uh, which then will help lead to the mobilization, right? So something really interesting, having lived in both the Philippines and Brazil, is that uh, um, in the Philippines, People like me, we can't go to a bar and like openly wear, you know, Aus Duterte stickers and like it's uh, and, you know, speak about, uh, you know, all the horrible things he does without looking over our two shoulders. There's this climate of fear um, here in Brazil, particularly in the area of Sao Paulo, where I live. The bars that all the cool bars have uh, Aus Bolsonaro stickers like on their doors. You know, you want to be part of this club um, and that. Uh, this breakdown of fear, uh, people don't go to the streets, people don't openly get involved in politics if they're afraid. And so sort of normalizing opposition is really important. And I think that uh, artists, uh, celebrities uh, have an important role to play in, in something that's, uh, uh, yes, a political battle, but also a cultural battle. Yeah, I just want to add, I think it's true that it's a cultural battle. Um, 
And in the Indian case, because it's about rewriting a history as well, so it's about you know constructing this idea of the Hindu nation, going back in time to ancient India, the role of historians, of sociologists, of, of social scientists is, is crucial because there's this constant attempt to produce new narratives about what is India and who's an Indian and so on, and that is constantly having to be challenged. Uh, the other role specifically for academics is within the diaspora because the diaspora is a kind of really important space for Hindu nationalist organizing amongst diasporic non-resident Indians. And that's where, again, there is some space, especially among the young, uh, second gen, you know, young diasporic Indians, uh, where there's this constant battle going on between the kind of critics of Hindu nationalism and the Hindu nationalists and academics are very heavily engaged in those battles, uh, you know, with conferences and writing and so on. So it's a, it's an engaged fight, it's going on. Um, and the third thing to note is that the, the government, the Modi's government, Modi in particular, is very sensitive to any kind of uh, jokes made about him so that you know, you have comedians being arrested, you have comedians being declared um, anti-national, which really just speaks to you about the power of, of art and of comedy. If if you if someone's been put into prison, and in this case, a young Muslim uh, comedian who was put into prison for jokes that he was supposedly going to be making, but hadn't yet made, right? So, but there was so much fear about what he might potentially say that he was um, he was locked up. So, so there is that that obvious power uh, that resistance through art can have. Well, very good. I think we've we've already gone considerably past the hour we we're meant to to end, and so I'll. Uh, <clears throat> lead you to wonder what uh, Fabio's uh, prediction would be for the 2022 Brazilian election. Uh, and that was a nice note to end on, and I think, and, and I hope that this uh, event tonight, as well as, uh, I suppose I say, this whole project of a series of scholars in, in different countries is one small contribution to this effort to, to educate people and to thereby resist this uh, frightening trend towards authoritarianism in the global south as well as in the rest of the world. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you very much to our speakers. And the uh, hub is good a night. community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Taimoria Library, as well as being heard. The hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. The rise of feminist Here's to the next 10 years.